It's the doc and the deacon, stethoscope and hope, talking everything from poop to the pope. One believing in spiritual miracles, the other believes in movement vows that are irritable. Two dads, more like two brothers, and they breaking bread like the Last Supper. This show won't get negative feedback, that be like the deacon prescribing a Z-Pack. So don't get it twisted like a Philly pretzel, Foles already told y'all that Philly special. Take notes from the knowledge they're teaching, pay attention, it's the doc and the deacon speaking. Welcome to Doc and the Deacon, a podcast between two dads, one of us believing in the power of science, one of us believing in the power of Jesus, but both of us believing in the power of an ice cold beer. And you know what? Today, we have a guest, and it's one of my partners. It's one of my lifelong partners. Your and life I, partner? No, but one of my lifelong partners. So I have my wife. Okay. And I have the Deacon. Holla. But this is actually one of my partners that I've even had for even longer than the Deacon. Wow. Yeah. He actually... I spend more time in the same place than you and almost my wife. Oh, so this is someone that you, do you choose that partnership or is it like a forced partnership? Well, this is the best part. He chose me. I interviewed with him. So I want to introduce you to uh, the man, the myth, the legend, one of my mentors, Dr. Joseph Calamia. Hello. (laughs) So tell me, I come in for an interview at this point. Why were you like, I think I should hire this guy? Was it because I hadn't grown a ponytail yet? That was part of it. Uh, you looked like you were a good fit. Relax, chill, fun, sense of humor. The last guy we interviewed before you was so stiff, so rigid, stick up his butt, but he had good credentials. Oh, Chris came, had the great credentials, but was definitely... So he did have good fun. credentials. He had good credentials. All so right. We started with that. What are some of the good credentials you're looking for when you're interviewing like a, a candidate to be a family physician in Norris Like, What are some of the things you look for? Well, first of all, with, with him, it was uh, the sense of humor was a good thing. You've got to have a sense of humor if you're going to be a doctor in Norris right? Yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. And um, other than that, um, he hit it off with every partner. We had we, we interviewed him, three of us interviewed him, and he hit, hit it off with all of us. And um, he was compassionate. So, who, so I have to tell you, since then, Dr. Calamy and I have interviewed many a people. And both of us have made decisions in hiring that were wrong. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I'm glad this partnership worked out. This one's but tough. there are definitely times... One of each we're both going to take credit for, where things didn't go as well as planned. And you both worked with, with uh, someone who I met and, and definitely adored, uh, Dr. Kevin Melnick. Yes. He was awesome. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. He was one of our partners in crime. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that has happened while we have been working together is all sorts of medical changes. But more than anything, the opiate epidemic. And one day I come into work. And Calamia, and uh, Dr. Calamia, who I'm going to refer to as Callie during this, goes, hey, have you seen the show Dope Sick? And? and you, I had not. You had not. I had not. Not only that, a little bit in, I said, wow, this is an amazing show. We should do an episode on it. And I finally convinced him to come on the show. You know I knew what? he wanted to come, but he was just waiting for the right chance. You know what's crazy? Because I, I think you talk about change, right? I mean, we've, we've obviously seen a lot of medical changes over the years. You know what has not changed is your office. I mean, bro, listen, the building has changed. Thing? They've got a new facade. There's a new, uh, you know, anchor tenant in there, right? We got Chop in there. Yeah. Right? We got this new anchor tenant. They bit, they put all this money into building it. The elevators have changed. Thank goodness. You remember that old elevator? The new one still doesn't work. The new one still doesn't work. <laughs> I have, at times, had to carry patients up the stairs in their wheelchair to get up for a visit. And back in the day, before they had finished the downstairs, we had like this empty office. And if we couldn't get the patient upstairs, I just went and did visits in this random room uh, on the first floor. But I can't believe how much everything has changed except for your office. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's the I, fish tank is still there. I'm I, not sure if there's any fish in it. I wanted, when they were done, I wanted to put those uh, uh, floor to ceiling like bead curtains and then have lava lamps when yes. you walk through it and just set the mood for that when you're coming, awesome. coming back to the 70s when you walk in yeah. our office. I like it. Well, Dr. Yeah. Calamia, I want to point out, graduated uh, college in three years or didn't graduate, but immediately got taken into 
um, medical school, finished medical school. I don't know if he did even one year of internship before the main guy running the practice from Norristown said, hey, just join the practice. Yes. So how old were you when you started? 25 years old? 25 to 26, yeah. Wow, making yeah. all that money at 25. Uh, yeah, no, you didn't make a lot of money at first. It was like, someday you'll make money. <laughs> yeah. You made more than you did as an intern. But, yeah. You know, it was back then you were like, boy, someday... I might make $75,000 a year. You know, those the partners all make $75,000 a year and I'm making 40. Right. You know, I wonder what I would do with 75,000 a year. Do you uh, well, did you I, always plan on being in family medicine? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I know that he gets hired. Right? He's just starting. And one of our other partners had been there forever says, "Hey, you look terrible. I need to take you out shopping and buy you suits. So our partner, Dr. Mino, yeah. takes him out and... Because he didn't like the clothes I wore. Oh, really? Because they were all... Like, I wasn't... I had no money, yeah. right? So he takes me to this fancy place and they fit me with all these nice suits. And then he's looking at me like, get out your credit card, right? So I get out my American Express card, which has no limit. And it was, I don't know, like 1200 bucks, right? Well, I never used the card before, so... The next month I get the bill and they want pay in full. Like, like the minute <laughs> I didn't realize American Express was pay in full. Yeah. So um yeah, I was broke. My first paycheck went towards my clothes. Wow. <laughs> but Dr. Calamia has been working long enough that at that time Oxycontin did not exist, which was one of the main focuses of the show Dope Sick. Yeah. So he could not sell a script to pay for his clothing. No. Other doctors in Norristown uh, maybe have sold some things for different things. But I've heard some stories. What made the show Dope Sick so amazing is it tells a story of a town in Appalachia, in Virginia, where the deacon is from. Holla. And this story, this show, is based on a book written by Beth Macy yeah. about how a company, a pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, created a drug marketed a drug as non-addictive and really went after with pharmaceutical reps, with sales, with convincing other doctors, all sorts of different misconceptions about this drug that led to an epidemic of opiates that lasted forever. Now, was it originally created as a pain management option or was it created for, with something else in mind? So... Beforehand, morphine is a medication that had been used for a long time. And they took morphine, which works great for pain, and made mm. a medication called MS-Contin. Right. Callie, do you remember MS-Contin? Yes, yes. And what they were trying to do is find a way to take oxycodone and make it longer acting. And the thought is the quicker a medicine hits, the quicker a medicine hits your brain, honestly, the more addictive oftentimes it is. The shorter acting. If something, you know, the anxiety meds, the ones you take right away, that make you feel better, those are addictive. You know, the stimulants you take and feel a buzz right away. And so the thought was by making a long-acting oxycodone, it would decrease the chances that you could get addicted. But in essence, they were just trying to sell met they were just trying to sell a pharmaceutical pill. Yeah. And and I think Purdue Frederick had the Contin patent, and they were trying to hook any drug into a long-acting formula. Sure. And they started with morphine. And then in the show, you see their patent was running out, and it was 25% of all their income was MS Cotton, so they had to think of something to replace it, and they came up with, they knew hydrocodone and oxycodone were popular, and good pain strength, good strength pain meds, and they, the one one dude in the show decided, we're going to hook oxycodone into a long-acting and sell it and market it. And um, that's how it got started. And what we, what we see in the show, which I think is beautiful, is the coal miners, the hardworking blue-collar people, and how it affected them. We see the doctors and how they were affected. And what we really see is the greed from the owners of this pharmaceutical company. So one of the, the big things that Purdue Pharmaceuticals did is they took... They extrapolated this little comment that was once in the New England Journal 30, 40 years prior that said inpatients getting opiates had a less than 1% chance of getting addicted. 
And for some reason, they were able to find a person that worked in the FDA to get to write on their label, there is less than a 1% chance of addiction. Right. And that's where all of the negative and problems with this started because all of a sudden, doctors were being lied to. Doctors were being told that here is an opiate that will treat pain. I used to wear that shirt when I, was, when I would go out. I used to wear a shirt, less than 1% of chance of getting addicted. <laughs> and I, I didn't have anybody, you know, nobody from the FDA would sign off on it, but I would wear it when I was out. And then poor Megan, my poor wife, she, she got was hooked. At less than one percent. Yeah, less than one percent. So, so the funny thing about that that article that said that it was actually a letter to the editor, written by a man who noticed it in hospital patients in a very small group. He said it was when they confronted him about this study because it took a while to trace down this study. Mm-hmm. Because they said, where's this study? Well, it wasn't a study. It was not a study. And the guy said, it was never a study. He, he said, well, do you know it's in all the pain medicine books? Now, quote your study. He says, you're kidding me. They said, no. Uh, and um, so it started on a big lie. Yeah. It started as a lie. And they knew it wasn't true. And as reports came in from these areas... The pharmaceutical company just doubled down. Just doubled down. One of the things they did, which actually in the show, it's, it's interesting. All of them do this. They looked at what's called IMS database. So they're able to review what doctors are writing what. Mm-hmm. And you get a certain amount of times that a rep is supposed to go. So reps that were selling pain medicine were seeing way more than others. Um, one of the things they said is in the story is, how can we cure the world of its pain? And what had never happened is we had never treated moderate pain or mild pain with opiates, right? It had been no. for cancer pain yeah. or severe pain and had not been used chronically. Right. Do you remember when they started selling the idea of treating pain? Yes. I, in fact, I, I was interested in pain and cancer pain when I was young and I had a couple seminars on it. I actually had that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross from Death and Dying come to a conference. The stages of grief. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I got well versed in using opioids for end of life uh, treatment. And um, I teamed up with a guy from Fox Chase and we would lecture people and stuff like that. I, when the American Pain Society came out, I actually joined it find out on this dope sick that that was actually funded by Purdue Pharma. <laughs> yeah, of <laughs> to, course, to, because why not? That yeah. makes sense. I mean, yeah. it, it, it really shows the gross uh, power that can be had sometimes with these things, right? I think the level of con that yeah. happened, the amount of people that they got involved and tricked is one of the biggest cons that happened in, in medicine, I think, of Oftentimes, all time. Oftentimes, and I think this is where, you know, um, I was talking with somebody the other day about uh, our podcast and about how we just try to bring an awareness that, you know, faith and medicine are very similar. You know, you trust. I would say different. You, you trust your physician. You you share. And when you're open with your physician, they can have the best chance to identify any issues and help you. And the same thing in the in in faith. If you if you trust your your priest, your pastor your, you know, your spiritual confidant and, and share and you're open with them and give them the full story is the best chance that they have to yes. really understand where you're coming from. But somewhere along the lines, because both are run by people, right? People. The medical yep. community and the church are both flawed because they're run by people. We've lost so much trust in many of the people in the higher levels there and it becomes this thing where we're always trying to hold our cards close to the chest. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know, Dr. Calamia, if you've ever played cards with, uh, with Dr. Drum. No. Have you ever played? No, I haven't. No, and you shouldn't <laughs> because he's a cheater. Okay. I am not a cheater. Right? I wouldn't play poker with What is he talking about? Yeah. He will try to see your cards. Oh, we were playing Old Maid and you, <laughs> and you were leaving the cards out, right? If you can't keep the Old Maid covered and you lose, that's your own fault. Whatever. <laughs> so Purdue Pharmaceuticals, right? One of the things they also did in this show is 
they tried to come up with all these terms and trick us in all sorts of different ways. One of the times during the show, they mentioned that Oxycontin could cure hangovers, which I thought was ridiculous. They also targeted rural miners, rural doctors. They went after doctors who weren't part of residency programs. They tried to go to smaller practices and find people that were out there treating people that were getting injuries, having back pain. You know, a lot of America was built on people who built things, like who worked in the steel mills, who worked in coal. And now no one wants to do that. No one built cars. No one wants to build cars. But a lot of America, we got to remember, was built on that. I know we all want to sit in front of our computer and never drive to work. Yeah. And, you know, I you know, don't lift anything at work, really. I sure realize that. But, you know, it was a different time. And these people really suffered with pain. The tricky part is Oxycontin did not help them. Well, and, and just like, uh, you know, the... Um the conspiracies or the things that have happened in the church because I think our systems failed, right? Because in the medical community back then, you didn't have one big system that said, hey, if you see Jimmy Smith, he's been prescribed ABC. So Jimmy Smith could go from doctor to doctor to doctor getting med- medications and and uh, different doses yes, and things like that that it wasn't hard to do just like you know, with, with things that happened in the church and we had these priests who who were uh, found to have behaviors that were not indicative of anything that you want of, uh, you know, uh, of abuse and, and scandal and things like that. But because the community was small and you didn't have these databases, it was hard to share that information in a way yes. that made it easy to protect Right, the you know the church or the hospital and the system, and 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 then especially the people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and back back to when OxyContin first arrived, um, because there was before OxyContin, and um, the marketing to doctors was minimal. You didn't see Vicodin reps, you didn't see Percocet reps. Uh, you saw patients come in asking for it by name. Uh, but you didn't see. So where were they hearing the name? From the streets. Yeah. Yeah. They would they would come in with an X-ray back then. You had a you could hold an X-ray in your hand with a kidney stone, and they would say, "I have kidney stones. Look, here's my X-ray. I need some Dilaudid. I need some Percocet." And um, they try to get it out of you, and you'd say, "Well, who gave it to you before?" and what pharmacy did you use? And back then, you'd have to actually call the doctor, call the pharmacy, and then you would figure them out pretty quickly. I remember I had one guy came in, and he looked so wasted, and he wanted me to write Percocet for him. And I said, look, I said, I'm busy as heck. I said, if I was to guarantee you that the ink from this pen will never write a prescription for Percocet on this pad for you, do you still want to continue with your story? And he goes, oh, man. And then he just leaves. And he, he was actually dead like four days later. He died oh, man. of a drug overdose. Yeah. yeah. But, so what's the difference between, um, you know, because I'm an idiot, right? I, I don't, the difference between like a Percocet, Vicodin, and, and Oxycontin. So Percocet is oxycodone with Tylenol. Okay. Vicodin is hydrocodone with Tylenol. Okay. And Oxycontin is oxycodone. In a higher dose, in a long uh, release. One of the things Purdue Pharmaceuticals did. Sub, I mean, it's in a pill. Is it an actual long release? I think that's part of the thing, right? Well, yeah. so it was wrapped in a coating. The tricky part is they started making higher and higher doses. They started with Oxycontin 10, they started Oxycontin 20, Oxycontin 40, and Oxycontin 80. Then they at one point tried to even market Oxycontin 160, which now. If we talk about morphine milligram equivalents, which we'll probably get into, um, is way more than they oh, would I can't recommend. Wait. Can we start that right now? But what they said is that you can't really – it's abuse deterrent. But all you had to do was put it in your mouth for a second, pull the coating off. Then you could crush it and you could snort it and it would hit your brain in minutes. Yeah. And 80 milligrams was a lot of Oxycontin without any Tylenol in it. So they don't want the Vicodin. They don't want the Percocet because I know it sounds crazy – a lot of these people, um, some have pain and are trying to treat their pain and get addicted. Some have pain and just get dependent on it. And some 
start with it and then really are, are abusing. But they are, they're worried about taking too much Tylenol. Yeah, they're yeah. not worried about taking too much Oxycontin, which is basically a long-acting of Oxycontin. Because the Tylenol, we know what that does to yeah. some of our, so, what is it, your kidneys? Your liver. The liver. liver. Yeah. Well, so the honest truth is taking Tylenol every day for a while is safe. But if you want to die, you take a bottle of Tylenol and you'll be dead in 48 hours. It is very deadly to overdose. It's very safe for under 3,000 milligrams a day. When I started enjoying Calamia, you were allowed to have 4,000 milligrams a day. We've kind of come down since. The tricky part is Purdue Pharmaceuticals came up with all these ideas. They put all these thought processes in in doctors' heads. Pseudo-addiction, which meant, hey, the patient looks like they're in withdrawal. And what did they tell us to do? Give them more. Double the dose. Double the dose. I remember seeing that from the book. And for our listeners out there, listen, before we get to the morphine milligram equivalent, I will give you a warning so that you can either, like if that's the time when you start to fall asleep or go get a cup of coffee. No, no, get your calculator. There's math for it. Oh, get your calculator. This this podcast is getting more fun by the minute. (laughs) Well, I will tell you, one of the characters in the show, and I want to point out, I also read the book. Well, and because this got postponed, I read the book twice. I mean, how many books do you read in a month, a given month? You know, four or five. Actual? Yeah, maybe maybe two to five, depending. How many of those have pictures in them? <laughs> zero, zero, zero. But one of the people, they asked him about Oxycontin, and during it, he said, it became my God. Callie, are you a big reader as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, I go on vacation, I read six books in a week. Medical... Books My wife or, hates it though. Like, do you read just what's your favorite type of reading material? I like um, I like mystery, and I like a strong main character. Oh, I'm going to give you some nicknames for Oxycontin. One okay. is the Wizard of Oxycontin. One is the Empress of Analgesia, and the he- the head of pain sales signed his e- signed his emails. The Pain King. The Pain King. The Pain King, yes. yes. Sounds like a character from one of your... Yes. Uh, well, the term you... I heard was he was oxycuted. Oxycuted, oh. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. What happened to so-and-so? Oh, he was oxycuted. Yep, yep. Not only that, in the book, they specifically point out Fishtown, Pennsylvania. And a bunch of the people um, who had died initially early in this were people from Fishtown, Pennsylvania, which we sure know right now is an area that's really struggling with addiction. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that stands out to me is here we have some of, uh, some of a very highly respected intellectual community who, who uses information based on facts, and we're still able to be uh, conned in a way, you know, like when I think about things like this in the, you know, and think about when you see facts, you know, I think I go back to in the Bible, if you remember the Pharaoh, we've talked about the plagues before. And I can't imagine having, you know, all those plagues happen and being the Pharaoh and still saying, no, 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 I'm not going to let your people go. Because I, I mean, there's this one story in Exodus 7 where Aaron takes his, he has his staff and, and he bangs it on the ground and it turns into a snake. And the Pharaoh's like, eh, whatever. And he tells his magicians, you guys all throw your staffs down and, and their staffs all turn to snakes. And so Aaron says, you think that's great? There's like six snakes on the ground. He throws his staff on the ground and his staff ate up the six other snakes, swallowed them, and then turned back into a staff. And Pharaoh's, instead of being like, whoa, that's crazy. I should really let these people go, right? Right. You know, uh, because they are God's chosen people, and I should probably let them out of the wilderness, let them go do their thing, get their new land. But instead, the Bible says his heart was hardened even more after watching that and was like, I don't believe it. And then started the plague of blood, you know, and there were still more plagues. Like, how? You know, we see the story. Right, we watch it unfold. What was the tipping point when it finally? What at what point did it take for somebody to say we've got a problem? 
Well, it, it took a lot. It took a lot because there were so many people and there were so many lies by this company. You know, saying addiction is rare, saying hammer the abuser, as opposed to Purdue Pharmaceuticals going, hey, we're getting people addicted. Hammer they the said, abuser. Hammer yes. the abuser. They said, go after the person that it's abusing. What we realized is people were breaking into stores and literally just stealing Oxycontin. I think there were some good scenes, remember, in, yes. the, in the show yeah. where they literally broke in just to steal those. And some things they said is these drugs could be taken for an extended period of time, but they had no proof of that. Not only that, they took uh, real data in scales and shrunk them down to show the ha- to show the half life to make it look like it was flat. Whereas if you looked at it quickly on the um, y axis, Deacon, yeah, um, they shrunk it down in certain areas to really just cause lies. Yeah, but so that it, luckily, listen, I, I there are things I have done things to make my y axis look bigger, <laughs> right? In my I, life, yeah, I prescribe, <laughs> I prescribed them. <laughs> so you know what it took? It took it took a doc and a deacon. It took a doc and a nun. Art Van Zee, a doctor from Appalachia, and a very strong-willed nun decided we need to fight back. And the tipping point was people, one person, one at a time, seeing what happened. A woman who lost her son starting a website. And so it's, then it started to some different lawyers who were working and seeing what was going on. And a DA and all of these people in small little battles. There's this term where they say... Here's to the ones that fight the battle, even if they do not win the war. And so I don't think there was one set tipping point, but all of these different people who started to fight. Yes. It was a slow, a slow push, and every, every step they tried to take, there were people blocking them, and very high, powerful people. Even um, To stop it. Yeah. One, one of my favorite uh, lines I was talking to Chris earlier was when they had to run this this suit passed the assistant head of the uh, Justice Department, and it was James Comey. Yeah. And he's talking about Purdue Frederick, and they said, he's not real happy with this case. So yeah. they go visit him. And he goes, no, what are you going after chicken for? <laughs> I go, what do you mean, sir? He goes, chicken. He goes, well, do you mean... Like, we're chicken or the food chicken? He goes, the food chicken. Now, why would you go after Frank Perdue? <laughs> and they're like, oh. Here, here they realize Comey thought they were going to go after Frank Perdue for something he's doing wrong with chicken right. instead of Perdue Frederick for the Oxycontin. So everywhere they turned, there was somebody blocking it one way or another. Um, and, and Perdue Frederick, they went after... Rural doctors in areas where they were treating a lot of pain, but then they would seduce them to go to these fancy conventions, and they would hire some high-power doctors from Princeton, from Harvard, pay them $100,000, and then bring them, and these guys would speak, and yeah. we would sit there and go, oh, my God, these guys are gods in the profession. Of course. I'm going to do what they tell me. The one, guy, the one guy, Dr. Portnoy, was yeah. super famous. Can you remember I do. being there and experiencing that? I remember given how you're supposed to titrate the drug. You start with yeah. this, and then you add this, and you go higher and higher and higher. Um, so explain – so titration, tell, tell our, our listeners who are not all medical professionals – when we talk about titration, we're talking about so in a, leveling so in a, up, right? So in a 24-hour day, yeah. you'd give 10 milligrams twice a day. Okay. But if they had breakthrough pain, they had something called oxy-IR, okay. which was immediate release. And you would give them that through the day to take if they had extra pain. Yeah. And then at the end of a month, you would count how many milligrams they were averaging a day. So let's say they were doing 10 plus 10 is 20, but then four fives which yeah. would be a so 20 now more. 40, so yeah. now you would up to Oxycontin 20 BID. Okay. And then you would still give them the IR. Well, they came back. Now you went to 40. Then you went to 80 because they kept needing more. And Purdue Frederick and all these specialists would say, you'll find that sweet spot. For, and, and, yeah. But every patient's different. You're going to have yes. to find right. And, and, but it didn't take long when you did that that you realized you were messing up. Well, that's and like on Weight Watchers. You know, have you ever been on Weight Watchers? You ever seen Weight Watchers? No, I've not. They tell you you can eat whatever you want, right? And they give you all, and then they give you, so they give you how many points you can have per day, and then they give you extra points. Yeah. And if you don't use your points, you can save them all up 
for one day, like, so you can have one really big fat day where you eat everything and then all, and you're still supposed to lose weight. I still have not figured it out. I'm not sure how much different it is from this, but it sounds pretty similar to me. Well, I have to tell you, the calendar to buy us lunch, people would fight over who could buy the calendar. And within two weeks, we were booked out for an entire year. Not only that, they would know what we wanted to eat. And I got there after the time. I know Calamia got in a limo. And did you get taken to New York City for like a show? Or a, a, yeah, it was a antibiotic, Augmentum. Oh, I love that. I read a lot yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it, it's very inexpensive now, I want to point out. And, and our wives and us, two limos or three limos showed up in our parking lot. We got in, drove all the way to New York, took us to a um, delicious high, highbrow top five-star restaurant. We ate the best food, and then we went to a number one play, and we sat through the entire play. What was the name of the play? Just so I can... I don't, I don't remember. Cats. It, oh, I, no, Cats <laughs> I fell asleep in. It wasn't Cats. <laughs> um, it was, oh, Phantom of the Opera. Oh, uh, one of my Phantom favorites. of the Opera was spectacular. And then, and then they drove us home, and then we talked to the rep, haha, we're best friends, and then they left. And I don't know how many Augmentum prescriptions they got out of that, but they, it probably paid for everything uh but that was standard well they have shown that people that see reps end up writing more brand name prescriptions and i really was pretty tough on the reps i also was very concerned about writing pain medicine when i started and came to the practice but i will tell you one day calamie and i and uh, uh, my buddy, uh, Dr. Melnick, are having lunch. And there is this uh, a woman there selling us. And she is uh, in a tight outfit with high heels. And we said, we're going to go for a walk. And she's like, well, I'm not done detailing. And we're like, well, we want to get outside and go for a walk. There's a busy street where we are. And she is literally walking in her high heels with her detail thing out, trying to sell us. And this woman she was, was doing backwards. her thing. She was walking backwards in the street in high heels and a short skirt trying to sell us medication. <laughs> there was another time where this guy was trying to sell me something. And for some reason, Calamia said something and I got the giggles. And I fell to the floor laughing. And I just took off and sprinted away from this rep at, at times. And then at one point, we were getting salmon brought for us. And they knew exactly what type of sandwich I want. They were reps that waited out in the parking lot and like would walk out as I walked out and it was the same people a few times. And I was like, hey, I know you know what time I get in. Do you mind if I walk into work by myself? And he's like, oh, I just didn't know if you wanted a breakfast sandwiches. And I was like, okay, I, I ate at home. You're, yeah, but you're, I mean, you're a sucker for a good breakfast sandwich. <laughs> I do like breakfast sandwiches. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But I will tell you, things change, things change when we realized very quickly, that people were getting addicted. I had a patient. I told him, hey, I can't write your pain meds anymore. You keep having abnormal urine drug screens. And the tricky part is, initially, when I was treating pain, there was this, there was this fight. There was this back and forth where I was trying to catch people doing things wrong so I could stop writing their scripts as opposed to realizing I need to embrace the fact that these people are addicted. So one patient had other things in his urine and I said, hey, I, I, I can't treat you if you continue to have abnormal urines. I know you have chronic pain, but I, I'm writing a lot of morphine for this, uh, for this man. And so I cut him off. And three months later, he overdosed. Yeah. And I felt really bad. And I thought, I had never started this person's medicine, but I had continued it. I did like this person. I, I hated the meds he was on. And I, and I titrated him back down the same way as you can titrate someone up. But the problem is... When you stop opiates, you feel sick. You feel sick worse than COVID. You feel sick worse than flu, except for you don't have fever. You get diarrhea. You get the shakes. The feeling inside of Do they call it like an oxy hangover or something? Like, what do they talk about? Dope sick. Dope sick. Dope sick. The name of the show. It's more than a hangover. It's it's cramping, diarrhea, anxiety, shaking, body aches. The fact is, people will do anything and even risk taking illegal drugs and at a point, OxyContin stopped getting written. OxyContin at the height, when we were in the midst of it, when I finished training and, and we were out for the first few years, was at one point going for a dollar a milligram. So if you had somebody on Oxy80 for a day and they sold it at this point for a dollar a milligram, if somebody got a script, 
they could sell it for um, almost $9,600 a month. So one script I could write you, you could sell for you know $4,000, $8,000 if you sold each milligram and did a good job. There were times where I had little old ladies, right? It's easy for the, you know, the 20-year-old who has the Oxycontin tattoo on the neck to yeah. realize this is a problem. But I definitely was tricked. I definitely treated people for pain and then checked the urine multiple times and saw nothing was there and realized these pills were being sold. How did you feel realizing that we both were in this together, that at times we prescribed meds that got sold and in our attempts to help others, we probably did damage? Yes. I, I always felt that I had the right motives for treating pain. Uh, but the problem is you're dealing with people, the worst are the people that used you. They came and they told you a story, a fake story, so they could get the drugs and sell them. And you, you felt really violated when you found out. I would get very angry when I found I out. I got angry too. Yeah. Yeah. Calamia used to call it weeding the garden. Once a year, he would go, everyone needs to get their urines checked again. And it's immediately, yeah. there was a time where uh, Calamia had a medical issue. <laughs> and uh, uh, he was out for a short period of time. And he's a machine. And when he came back, I discharged six of his patients. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's just one of those. When I take care of my own patients, I believe them. I trust them. Yeah. When you see someone else's, you're like... Not everything here makes sense. It is interesting how that dynamic exists. Sure. It's also good what when you're in a group practice. Yeah, to let somebody, hey, listen, each other. I think there's no problem with saying, listen, you see all my patients next week, and I'll see all of yours, and we'll do, we'll yeah. do each other's follow-ups. And- well, in 2016, the CDC came up with uh, new opiate guidelines, and the very yeah. specific things uh, behind it were family doctors shouldn't be writing for chronic pain, higher than a certain morphine milligram equivalent. Yeah. Right? Also... Acute pain is one thing. Yeah. Right? I, I, and then... Something going to get me through uh, uh, for something I need for 30 days or whatever. When we're talking chronic would be anything that is is a multi-refill over what's a period of time? Three well, months? Six months? Yes. For us now, uh, things have changed quite a bit. Yeah. But at that point... We really had to change. And morphine milligram equivalents was just a calculated... Oh, right, here we go. More morphine milligram equivalents, people. I'm not even going to go there. But it really reduced how much pain medicine we wrote because we knew you really can't and you were going to get audited. Yeah. And then a few years ago, we see a lot of patients. And they go, hey, how much pain medicine are you writing? So we have decided to write zero pain medicine. And I will tell you, People are doing fine. How much pushback do you get from patients on that? Well, I think if you're 100%, I'm not doing it. They understand, and you have to go to pain management. Some are unhappy, but I have not lost many patients. I agree. It was easier than to say, I'm going to wean you, or I'm going to cut you down. It was easier to say, I'm done. I can't write anymore. I'm going to send you. You have your choice. Let's get you off of it. Let's get you to pain management, or let's get you to an addiction specialist. They're your only three choices. And um, a lot of them, I'd say 40% just said, I'm just going to stop. And they stopped and they had no problem stopping. They were almost waiting for you to tell them it's time to stop. Uh, And and then I had a lot go to pain management. And out of of maybe I ended up with 140 opioid patients that I got down to zero. And out of those, I bet you two were like crazy, wanted to kill me, that kind of stuff. The wow. rest the rest were just right along, did beautifully. I have to hand it to them. But I started with, hey, we're in this together because didn't, you didn't rip this pen out of my hand and write it yourself. Yeah. So it worked. Yeah, I, I think exactly. One of the positive things is, as an office, we made a decision together and my patients aren't doing less. Right, most of the people that were on high dose pain medicine, I can't think of that many that it was the difference between them going to work and not. And I'm sure there's gonna be a patient who like sends me a message being like, drum, actually, you know, it really messed me up. But most really have done fine and have done better off pain. Stay medicine. tuned, our next episode, we're gonna have that patient on. <laughs> <laughs> and they're gonna be talking about morphine milligram equivalents. Well, you know what I love? is that the show Dope Sick was amazing. Yeah. Right? It actually won two Emmys for Outstanding Cinematography for Limited Anthology and also there was Outstanding... A one, there was that one... Uh, what was the dude in that sh- in the show that I thought was really good? The rep was amazing. 
The rep was great. Yes. Outstanding lead actor. I think I could I could definitely be a, a rep actor. I think I should be. I think I smell. I kind of look. Do, do you think I, if I walked in your office, you would talk to me? I would think that you were there for OxyContin and I would send you away. Man, I'm working on it. And Michael Keaton, who played the doctor. Yes. Did an amazing job. That's the Batman. That is the Batman. That is the Batman. So are we, re- are we, re- are we ready for a game? A game? Yeah, a game. What, what kind of game? So first, it's questions for you. Number one. Oh, is, I'm always good at the questions. Dr. Calavilla is never, okay. Oh, it's one of the, all right. I, am I supposed to guess the question? No, 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 no. So who, Dope Sip was on. Dope Hulu. Sip, it was on Hulu, but it was on Hulu. Which, Not Netflix. Which is the best streaming service? Hulu, Netflix, or Amazon Prime? And why? I like Netflix because I already paid for it, so everything's free. I think that's a great answer. Um, I, you know, I will say this. I think I like Netflix because uh, they always have something new coming out, right? There's always a next show, a next this. Um, we agree Amazon Prime is third. I, I would agree that Amazon Prime is third. Okay, excellent. Uh, until Thursday Night Football. Oh, yes. Luckily, I pay for all these streaming services, and yeah. that's why I have to work long days. Uh, subscribe to my podcast, please. Um, <laughs> next, Michael Keaton, who played the doctor, who, um, spoiler alert, gets addicted to Oxycontin and really makes bad decisions and um, really had a great time in Scottsdale, Arizona, telling stories about his patients and his patients in pain and how he helped them. But most of the patients he helped ended up dying before episode eight. Um, so I'm going to give you three movies that Michael Keaton was in, and we're going to rank them one through three. Okay. Number one. Was he the best? I, I think, should, was he, like, where do you rank him as a Batman? Better than Ben Affleck? Oh, yes, of course. How dare you ask that question? Better than Val Kilmer? Yes, Val Kilmer was terrible. Better than... Uh, Christian, Christian, Christian Bale, Bale. And Michael Keaton. I'm going to give Christian Bale one. Michael Keaton, 1A. Okay. After that, I'm going to go with uh, the guy from the 60s, where they said, bam, Oh, yeah, whoop, yeah, knock. that guy, yeah. And then after that, I go... Ben Affleck, Val Kilmer, and George Clooney is last. This is maybe one of the only times. All right. Where George Clooney ends up last. And I left out Robert Pattinson. This wasn't part of the game. but He was fine. Okay. The next part is best movie uh, that he was in. We're going to rank them one through three. Batman. Yep. Spotlight. Okay. And Beetlejuice. And Spotlight, I'm going to put number one because... Oh, here we go. Because it was about... The Catholic Church. It's about the Catholic Church. And all the things that went wrong. So I don't care how well he did acting in that. But for me, I'm going to put spotlight one for the point I'm trying to make. I, I would agree because I think it's important to understand that the church is run by people and flawed just as is uh, many things to do with medicine. So I would put spotlight first and then I'd go Beetlejuice, then Batman because Beetlejuice is iconic to me. Yeah. I mean, I was an 80s kid. And it was happening, you know, I dig it. I didn't see Spotlight. Um, Beetlejuice, definitely. Uh, although ba- he was the best Batman. I'm Batman. Yeah. Just <laughs> give that look. I'm Batman. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So I think I want to hear. That's it. That was a big buildup for two little games. Okay, fine. You have another game. Who was the best actor to play a physician ever? I don't know his name, really. Yeah, Robert Young. Marcus Welby, MD. Way Marcus before Welby, your MD. time. I read the book. Did you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, Marcus Welby was a book written about a doctor yeah. who was, you know, a kind of a family country doctor. It's probably what made me be a doctor. That, That's amazing. That book. That's awesome. Yeah. That's or awesome. that movie, I should say. Or it, was a, it was actually a TV show. I mean, I think you know what I'm going to say. I don't. Robin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I fell in love with medicine through Patch Adams. <laughs> it's true. You know why? Because he never studied and you yeah, never studied. Exactly. <laughs> right? And Somehow he became a, a doctor without yes. opening a book. And the deacon thinks he's a and doctor. And I often think I'm a doctor. If you ask my wife, she thinks that I think that I'm a doctor. And you've never opened a book. That's right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And the sense of humor is such a good thing with medicine. And I'm going to get really one of those one day. Really <laughs> my question for you yeah. is... What is the church doing to help with the opiate epidemic? So uh, there's a lot of great programs. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Narcotics Anonymous and, and programs like that 
there are programs that that churches have inside uh, the church. I think one of the things you can do, I think there's a few things, right? We remove the stigma. And couldn't agree more. Remove and, the stigma and treat and love the person, right? I mean, it is obvious. Addiction is a disease, and I think when we understand that and we recognize and we can say, remove. Like you said, it's easy to to identify the guy with the oxycotton tattoo on his neck, but when you understand what people are going through, the pain that they experience, and and you can meet them where they are. And then uh, try to help them and show them that they have a support system and people who are going to trust them and make them feel trust in so that they can really open up. So I think the church is uh, meeting people where they're at. There's some programs with inside the church walls that are anonymous um, that really, I think, I think anonymity helps people, um, you know, start to build that trust. Uh, I think more and more we're seeing the church partner with programs in in communities um, where they are um, uh, doing uh, community service and and partnering alongside these programs where they can help and, and provide prayer and services and and then I think uh, ultimately as well um, being just that um, uh, the the place that people know they can go yeah. Right. To, yeah. To where they they feel like, hey, uh, there's someone there that's going to listen to me. So I think having the open ears, and and being willing to listen. I think the church has been devastated through COVID as well. You know, many Catholic churches uh, lost um, staff members and things like that. So, you know, it is it it is challenging when we look at our our local government and we look at the resources that are devoted. Too. I mean, we live in a community that is underserved in, in, in Montgomery County and in Norristown, uh, specifically when it comes to addiction and, and epidemics like the one that we that we see here. You, you don't have to go very far to see the effects on our communities. Um, and and even, even the addiction treatment programs are riddled with fraud and abuse. And, and they're not supposed to be... It only the only option, right? right? They have to be partnered with other programs that help people get back to work and find jobs and you find to, value and feel yes. valued, right? When you, when you do 21 days out the door, yeah. halfway house, done, it's ridiculous. It, 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 it's easier to cure most cancers than to cure heroin yeah, abuse. Yes, but the difference is someone with cancer comes in in and out for treatments. The amount of money that is spent for something where oftentimes people have relapses is, is really tricky, right? It's tough. I mean, how long do you pay for someone inpatient? Yeah. But what I've realized is one way I've improved at treating people with opiate addiction disorder, uh, opiate use disorder, is the fact that I don't write anymore. The fact that I write zero opiates makes it so that there's no dynamic, there's no bartering. It's, hey, if you have issues, I'm here to help you. And you know I love you. And you know I want you to be sober. But if you're not, I'm okay with it, right? Diabetics can have perfect sugars for, you know, nine months and then have a bad month and we don't yell at them. And if somebody is, you know, doing well and then has a slip up, I don't want them to make them feel bad. I want to try to stay positive. But now that I've taken out this, like, trying to sell me that they have pain, which I believe they've always had pain, but to try to sell me to write them more pills, now that I've taken this dynamic out, it's made me a better physician. I'm not arguing with people. I don't discharge people from my practice. I am more understanding. I am more welcoming. I wish I could have done that while still having this kind of pulling back and forth of them wanting to get things from me. Now that I've taken that out, it's made me a better physician. Sure. I agree with that. I agree with that. I I uh, some I talk to a lot of patients who have children that are addicted, and that children die of drug overdoses. And I one of the lines I use is, "I'd rather my kid have leukemia than heroin addiction." It it doesn't discriminate, right? No, I said leukemia. They pray for you. They have. Uh, collections. Yeah. They 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 see you on the street and they say, "So how's your daughter doing? How's yeah. your son doing?" Heroin addiction. They think you you are a horrible parent. You had to have done something wrong. 
um, you feel guilt and it's a, it's a whole different dynamic. And yet it's as deadly or more deadly than a lot of leukemias. I think here's what we know. I think we know, um, and I say this, uh, you know, addiction is, 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 uh, it doesn't discriminate. It can attack any family at any time, regardless of education, socioeconomic status, or faith. Yeah. It can sneak up behind you. It can hit you in the face. And I think you're right. I think one of the things we don't do is talk about it enough, mm-hmm. right? And have support programs. Because that's another big thing is, you know, as a family who's going through it, who do you reach out to? You know, and they say... Yeah, some people are embarrassed to say, hey, yeah, hey, my son's going through problems with addiction. It's so much easier to say my son has leukemia. Yeah. One, one as my... awful as that is, to, as awful as it is for anyone to ever have to utter those words, yeah. right? I mean, those are, I don't want to diminish the power that those words have because that is, you know, really awful to say. But I think, you know, I think you said it very well. Rehab uh, is, is not enough. Yeah, the, you know, uh, and you know what some people say when they're having a when they're having problems with opiates, you know, they say their parents are trying to say they tried to make me go to rehab, but I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, you'll know who know who know. I said I ain't got the time when Daddy says I'm fine. They try to make me go to rehab, but I said no, no, no. Two things you can count on. The doc is in and the deacon speaks. What I want everyone to do is if you have a friend, if you know someone that is having issues with opiates, reach out to them. If they did in the past, ask them to tell you their story. If you don't really know about it, watch Dope Sick. It's great. Yeah. Hey, thank, thank you to Dr. Calamia. Uh, Thank you for agreeing to hire for me. hiring this this ragtag ponytail taco meat hanging out his pink scrub doctor who um, who's one of the hardest working people that I know and and I'm I'm fortunate that uh, that he became a physician and fortunate that I got and and get to spend time around. Uh, Dr. Calamia, the practice there at, at Norristown Family Physicians. Even though Dr. Calamia says that he's going to die on a Thursday at like 3 p.m. because he works so hard. <laughs> on the 28th. That's right. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Calamia, for coming out and joining us. Thanks today. to our producer, Tucker Butler, our Thanks rapper our- franchise. If you see him, there's probably a picture of him on a milk bottle because we haven't seen him in a while. Hi. Thanks to our wives. Uh, my wife works full time. But, uh, but I'd like to thank her anyway. <laughs> Don't do drugs. <laughs> Peace. Peace. Excellent brain trust to market and brand this. That's set in stone like the Ten Commandments. This show won't be around for infinite years. I think we can all agree on ice cold beers. 100% authentic, you can't fake it. Often imitated, but never duplicated. So knowledgeable, take a lot of facts in. Now I'm coming to close it like a Roldis Chapman.